We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk again this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, just the whole chapter. Go ahead and pull it up in your phone, in your app. It's H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. It took me a while to spell it correctly. Uh, or in, if you're going to use one of these Bibles here on the, the uh, end chair of each row, it's page 738. You can go to your table of contents or go to the book of Matthew and go five to the left between Nahum and Zephaniah. That's how I often find it. So to give you a little context, if you've been with us so far in this series, this three-part series, this will be a refresher. If not, this will be, be something new. But the context of Habakkuk is that he is a minor prophet. This doesn't mean his, his ministry was insignificant. It just means his writings were less than like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. He was a prophet to the southern tribe of Judah. Okay, there was 12, 12 tribes Initially, they broke up under Solomon. Ten went to the north, two went to the south. And so, a hundred years earlier than our text this morning was when the north got invaded by Assyria and was taken away, no longer to exist. So now, we are in the early 600 BCs. This is Habakkuk prophesying over uh, the nation of Judah to the south, remembering What just happened to the north a hundred years earlier? And he's saying, guys, we got to get back to this. God, you got to, we got to do something about this because I don't want to happen to us what happened to the northern tribes. And so this book is three cycles, basically two, two cycles of complaint. He complains, God responds, first sermon. He complains again, God responds as a second sermon, and then here is a, a prayer or a, a psalm of sorts. So his first complaint was that God wasn't doing anything. There was the wicked in the land of Judah, and they were oppressing and even killing the righteous. And so he says, God, why are you sitting idly by? You're a just God. You can't let this happen. And then God says, I'm not sitting, sitting idly by. I'm actually doing something. I'm doing something you wouldn't even believe if told. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk responds with more confusion and more misunderstanding maybe of who God might be and how he works because there's a full description of the Babylonians and they're much worse than the people he asked God to take care of in the first place. So that's what's happening is... He's saying, you, get rid of the wicked. And God's saying, I will, with a more wicked nation. This baffles Habakkuk. And so God's second response is, he tells him to wait. And he says, by faith, the righteous will live by faith. I need you to wait. I'm doing something. And then for the rest of that chapter two, he shows him, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to enact justice. I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. It is certain. Just wait for it. That's where we're at this morning. And the last words of Habakkuk, prior to this point we're going to read this morning, where I'm going to go up to my watch post, and I'm going to look out, and I'm going to wait to hear what you have to say. 
and then I'll respond. This, what we're going to read this morning, is Habakkuk's response to that. So read with me chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigenath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the, sea, the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave, up, gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrow as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in a book and in a text that we all can relate with. Our, str our struggles, our afflictions, 
our confusion. Lord, I pray that you would meet us this morning. Meet us in your mercy. Meet us in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, where we're at in our book of the month, which is Hind's Feet on High Places, where we're at this morning, uh, just to give a quick summary, is this is a, an allegory much like the book Pilgrim's Progress, where Much Afraid is the main character going up the mountain and Just, this is a, she, she is a, um, sorry, excuse me, she's, she's limp and she's afraid and she lives in the valley. Bye, ladies. She's limp and afraid and she lives in the valley and the shepherd is calling her up the mountain and he says to her, I will meet you upon the mountain at certain places and at certain terms, but I'm not going to be there the whole time. Instead, he gives her two companions named Sorrow and Suffering to go along this journey with her up the mountain. But he says to her that he'll give her feet like deer's. He'll give her hind's feet so that she can tread on high places. So that as she lives in the valley and looks up the mountain, knowing full well that she can't be capable of actually going up there, the shepherd calls her and says, I'll make your feet like the deer's. I'm going to transform your feet so that you can leap. So he calls her up the mountain, and she goes with her companions, and around each bend, she's going through valleys and continuing up, going through a valley here and there with sorrow and suffering the whole time. And so she goes through the valley of humiliation. And she comes out the other end and she reaches the top and she sees the shepherd standing there and she realizes her feet have been changed. She no longer limps. She actually has hind's feet and she's able to leap. And her companions, sorrow and suffering at this point in the book, have been transformed into joy and peace as she stands before the shepherd who she will be with forevermore. Sorrow and suffering, doubt and confusion are companions of all of us, to certain degrees and at certain seasons, but nonetheless companions. And what we've seen so far in this book of Habakkuk is that even when our circumstances aren't showing it, We should trust that God's still working for our good. And even when we get there, we should wait patiently on him to work that good. To bring his justice. Now these two things are not easy. We understand these are not easy to do. But now, but now we actually see rejoicing in the midst of all of it. Rejoicing that seems nearly impossible in the middle of sorrow and suffering and doubt. How can I look at my life, which seems to be not working out, not working in the way of good, and rejoice? How can I do that when I'm unemployed? 
or when I'm going through non-stop cycles of sickness or disease. My kids are continually disobedient and my marriage is a constant struggle. How can I rejoice? In the middle of all that, we see this morning a, a prayer of rejoicing in the God who delivers. We can rejoice because God delivers on his promises and he delivers his people from evil. We can rejoice because God delivers on his promises and he delivers his people from evil. We can have joy because we know God is working for our good. So let's take a look at our passage this morning in a little bit more detail to see all that one more time. So read with me verse 1 again. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigenoth. This is a prayer that is to be, or a psalm that is to be used in worship. If you guys see, maybe on the right side of the, uh, the column of your Bibles, there's that word Selah, verse 3, and at verse 9. And then at the very end, the last word, right, to the choir master with string instruments. This is a song. This is a song of joy, a song of rejoicing. It wasn't just a private prayer. Even though it has individual application, this wasn't just a private prayer. Habakkuk was the mediator between God and his people. The prophet was the covenant mediator. And so this was used as a psalm and a song for his people. Continue in verse 2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He starts with a petition. He's asking God something. He hasn't stopped from doing that. And he says, I've heard your work. He says, revive it. Do it again, God, in the midst of these incredibly difficult years. When the wicked seem to prevail, do to them what you've done in the past. He's not saying, okay, it's okay that you don't act anymore. I'm okay with that. He's saying, I know you're going to act. I know you're going to act. You've done it all in the past and you're going to continue to do it. That's his petition. Make it known. Let us all see it so that we all can rejoice and praise you for it. While you enact injustice, remember mercy. Bring your wrath upon those who do evil, the wicked in Judah and especially Babylon. Bring your wrath, enact justice, but mercy towards those whom you call faithful who you have counted as, as righteous. And though you have every right to bring deserving justice to us all, have mercy on the remnant, the group of people who you promised to continue to protect and to preserve. This is how he starts his prayer with a petition. But then he reminds himself of who God is. He reminds himself of who God is, and he recounts his work. There are two, two simple points this morning. First one is recounting the works of God. The second one, resolving to submit to the goodness of God. 
That was not intentional alliteration, by the way. I, I don't usually do that. It just naturally came about. Recounting and resolving. Point number one, recounting the works of God, verses 3 through 15. Okay, this, this section here, this is a display of God's presence and God's work. The first half, verses 3 through 7, are going to show us God's presence in, in what's called theophanies. Some of you have might heard that word. A theophany is, is basically just God's uh, special presence in history. The burning bush would have been one. God shows up in an unusual way. Um, Sinai is another one, his presence coming down, which we're going to read. That's actually one of them here. Another one is when his glory fills the tabernacle, right? He does these in moments in history, theophanies. He shows up in, in different ways, in unusual, spectacular ways. And so Habakkuk is going to recall that, and he's going to go through them. We'll go through these verses here one by one. We'll go through some of them quicker, some of them slower. But read with me as we see God's presence showing up in these theophanies. Read verses 3 and 4 again. It said, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Now, Taman and Paran were mountains to the east. And what he's saying, God will come like that to the east, which the sun rises in the east. God will come and shine on us as the mountains are to the east, shining on the rest of the world. That's, that's the imagery we have here, is that God is going to shine on us the way that these, these mountains overlook us from the east. He's just giving imagery of, of what God's presence is, is like. It's like rays of flashing light. Continue verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This, these were God's companions. Pestilence and plagues during the Exodus when God rescued his people, when he judged the, the so-called gods of Egypt. Remember, he's giving us a, a depiction of an awesome yet fearsome God. That's the imagery we're getting here. <clears throat> Continue on, verse 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This is a depiction of Sinai and what happened at Sinai. I'm going to read, I'm going to read the, the account here in Exodus, 6, Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18. You don't need to turn there, just listen. It's a couple verses. But listen, listen what happens when God's presence shows up on Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
That's what it's like when God's presence shows up. And this is why we see in Scripture so many fear the Lord's. Because there's a healthy trembling. There's a healthy fear of the Lord and a reverence of God that's to be seen here. And then he says, your ways are everlasting. These ways don't change. This is an unchanging God, and that is, that is extreme comfort to us. To look back and to see a holy God who works for good and fights for his people is not going to stop doing that. His ways are everlasting. And so the second half of this section right here shows us those unchanging works. And he does it, Habakkuk does it in a way of, of warrior image. This is God as warrior. This is God taking up his spear and his arrows and acting on behalf of his people. He recounts the different moments in Israel's history where God did battle on behalf of his people. So read with me in verses 8 through 11 as we continue through this. So that was his presence in the first half, and now we see his works. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. His wrath against the rivers. God's power over the rivers and the seas almost as if he's doing battle against them. This is when he parted the Red Sea. He stopped the waters at the Jordan. Whatever deity the Egyptians thought was in charge of the rivers, it was very clear and apparent they weren't actually in charge. God was showing his control because he was doing what he wanted with them. He made the sea obey his voice. He made the rivers obey his commands. And the sun and the moon standing still, this brings us back to Joshua's conquest in Joshua chapter 10 where they're going to fight to go into the promised land and he's fighting the Amorites and he says, God, keep the sun. Keep the sun up so I can have daylight to finish this off. And God ju- does just that. What a day to remember. What a day to remember. A day that obviously was not forgotten for Habakkuk and the people of Judah. They haven't forgotten moments like this. They're recalling moments like this when when God showed up. And that brings them into joy. That brings them into rejoicing. Continue with me in verses 12 through 15. We're going to sit in this one for a little bit longer. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. 
you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. A continued description of God as warrior. He marched through in fury, crushing the house of the wicked, drowning the mighty warriors in the surging sea. This is moments, this is moments like the flood, right? When God wipes out the entire world except eight. This is moments like when he rains sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and completely obliterates them, no longer on the face of the earth. This is moments like we read when he lets the, the walls of the Red Sea come down on Egypt's entire army. God came to battle his enemies in the past. He didn't sit idly by. And why did he do this? Why did he do this? Verse 13 says it, for the salvation of his people. In the flood, he saved the anointed. He saved Noah and his family. Sodom and Gomorrah, he saved Lot. The Red Sea, he saved the entire nation of Israel. Though God brings his wrath to destroy, he saves his anointed. In wrath, he remembers mercy. One commentator says it like this. The whole purpose of this psalm and of God's theophany is to indicate the continued presence of gracious care coupled with divine judgment. Here we have God's answer to Habakkuk's complaints. His people will be saved. His people will be saved. That's where this all started in chapter, long, uh, chapter one. How long? How long, O oh Lord, will you do this? How long will I cry out and you do not save? God does save. He is just, and so he brings justice. But he's also merciful. So he remembers mercy. He saves his anointed. And anointed here in your text this morning is literally Messiah. God is for his people. He is for his anointed. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? We just read a few examples given above, but if that God just described in those verses is for you, what can be against you? What can actually stand against you and oppose you? God has gone out for his people's salvation since the beginning. All incredible rescues. All vitally important to his entire plan of redemption. But these were momentary rescues. But when God set out to save his people for good, he did it through delivering his anointed on the cross. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians 2. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, 
nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus disarmed Satan's threat of death by defeating death itself. In his resurrection, he conquered death once for all. In God's wrath, his condemning of sin in Jesus Christ, he remembers mercy. Mercy for all those who trust in Christ. All those who have believed in him by faith. And through the deliverance of the anointed one, he, he brought salvation for his people. A salvation that cannot be taken or lost. God still continues to fight for you. The cross proves this. When he did away with the greatest problem we have of sin, and he defeated the last enemy of death. And if he is for us, and if he is working for us, and if he did indeed punish his son on the cross for you, then what can truly come against you? Though it might not feel that way, but it often doesn't. Your current circumstances that seem against you are actually being used for your good. And if you're here this morning, you look at your life and you say, I haven't trusted in Christ. I haven't believed. And just giving a survey of my life, there's, there's no way I can really understand that God is good or believe that. Look, look at the scriptures. Read what we just read. See Habakkuk showing us the mighty God who works for his people, who, who continues to work for his people from the beginning. Look at that. See that. And trust in the God who is unchanging and will continue to work for your good, will continue to preserve you. Because this is our God, because this is who we serve, we can, we can submit to his goodness. We can submit to his goodness and trust in his unchanging work. So point number two, resolving to submit to the goodness of God. Read verse 16 with me. So after all of that, he says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me yet. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This recounting of the majesty of God makes him tremble. God's power is not to be trifled with or taken lightly. Thinking of the wrath of God, even when it's toward his enemies, makes his heart pound. And with all that, he says, he'll wait patiently for the day of trouble. 
in the middle of the whirlwind. Evil within Judah and Babylon, more evil coming about. Even in the middle of all of that, and Habakkuk not really grasping and, and understanding the intricacies of why God is doing this. In the middle of all of that, he straps himself to the goodness of God. This made me think of the movie Twister, an old one. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Okay, me too. And there's this moment, it's been like 30 years, so spoiler, I'm sorry. There's this moment where near the end, he's, the main character uh, is in this, the, the eye of the storm, and they have, he has a moment to, to tie himself to something. And so there's this pole that goes deep into the ground, and so he ties a belt or something around him so that when the tornado comes and picks everything up around him, and he's hanging upside down, he's okay, because he's tethered to this pole that, that runs deep into the ground. And it's just a, a picture of, I think, what Habakkuk is going through, of just the whirlwind of, I, I don't really understand this at all, God, I don't. And, and this book is not saying that Habakkuk gets to a point, place where he understands exactly what God is doing. That's not the point. But he tethers himself to the character of God and his unchanging works. So that when he's in the middle of that, he doesn't go anywhere. He can sit in the middle of that storm, the middle of whatever is going on, and trust and wait for God's goodness to come about. Continue with me in verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit Beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is no delicacies, no figs, no wine. This is no food of sustenance anymore because he doesn't have cattle. They don't have milk. They don't have anything. He's saying even then, when all else fails, I will rejoice. Somehow I will still have joy. And more than one commentator said that these two verses right here are some of the most powerful verses of faith in the entire scriptures. Though it's all gone, though I have nothing, I will rejoice. His material possessions are gone, and somehow he can rejoice because of his faith in God. And the righteous will live by faith. When you lose your job, and it's becoming increasingly more difficult to feed yourself and to feed your family. When you have a diagnosis that seems hopeless, when your closest relationships seem dashed upon the rocks, your friends, your parents, or your kids, or your siblings, or even your spouse, when what you've been working toward your entire life does not come about, 
or in all your circumstances. Do not look in any way like you wanted them to or like they're working for good at all. And the road of hope to reconciliation or forgiveness to successful future seems gone. How will you respond? How will you respond? If your aim in life is to be successful or significant, then it's going to be difficult or nearly impossible to rejoice when seasons like this come about. But if your aim in life is communion with God, then these very circumstances actually move you towards that goal and towards that end. They move you toward a God who loves and cares for you, who is for you, a God you can trust through all of it. I want to read a a quote here from a man named Jerry Bridges. He wrote a book called Trusting God. It's about five or six sentences, but these these words are, are incredible and very relevant to our text this morning. Listen to these words. He says, Trusting God does not mean we do not experience pain. It means we believe that God is at work through the occasion of our pain for our ultimate good. It means we work back through scriptures regarding his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his goodness, and ask him to use those scriptures to bring peace and comfort to our hearts. Because God cares for you. He continues, not only will he never leave you, he cares for you. He's not just there with you. He cares for you. His care is constant, not occasional or sporadic. His care is total. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. His care is sovereign. Nothing can touch you that he does not allow. His care is infinitely wise and good so that even the words of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace after losing his wife can say if it were possible for me to alter any part of God's plan I could only spoil it like Habakkuk just did we're to look back through the scriptures to recount the amazing works of God and the wonderful presence of God in our life. And when we do that, we can see his sovereign work, that nothing is outside his plan of redemption. That becomes clear as we recount the works that he continues to do and that he's done for all of human history. What Habakkuk initially saw, the only thing he saw were his present circumstances. 
and his hopeless future. Now, now he looks back and he sees God's past work that assures him of his hopeful future, of his certain future. Finish with me in verse 19. God, and that's, that's Yahweh there, that's the personal name. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. The sovereign God who is in control is my strength. Not my position in life, not how things are going right now. When things go well, I am hopeful, I am strong, I am confident. And when they don't, I'm hopeless. I'm no longer confident that God's working for good. But no. The God who is sovereign over all and control of all things, he is my strength. The unchanging God alone is where I draw my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. And in our book, Hind's Feet on High Places, if you read it or not, or if you've heard these summaries, it was the shepherd who gave much afraid these two companions, sorrow and suffering. They didn't just appear. They weren't there by accident. And at the end of that book, as sorrow and suffering were transformed into joy and peace as they lived in the presence of the shepherd, they ended up, they thanked much afraid for helping them up in the mountain. And much afraid is sitting there in shock because she just got done thanking them for helping her up the mountain. And they said, they said, every time we went through a valley, we went through a moment of difficulty and affliction, you didn't turn back from us. You also didn't try to go on the mountain without us, but you, you pressed into us. You held us close. And because you accepted us as sorrow and suffering as your companions, we eventually turned into joy and peace. Because she accepted sorrow and suffering. And that's what we got to watch here. Habakkuk the prophet go through the same kind of journey where he started pushing back against God's ways of bringing justice, but ending with, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. None of his circumstances had changed. But he rejoiced in the Lord because he had shown himself to be good time and time again, and he recounted that goodness. He remembered it. And it was at the the forefront of his mind when he thought of God. And so then he can say, I will wait patiently and rejoice in the God who delivers on his promises. Let's pray. God, we, we may not understand everything going on in our lives and for the most part we won't understand but we ask that you would 
by your grace and your mercy, help us to see your good works. Help us to see your presence that brings us joy, that brings us peace. So that we can look at sorrow and suffering and know that these are companions you have given us in this life. But that one day they will turn into joy and peace. Let us, let us know them. Let us know your son who suffered and was sorrowful for us so that we can live with joy and peace for all of eternity. In your son's name we pray. Amen.